0: We've heard a lot about love this morning, and of course we know the Bible says that God is love. And a question that I had a child ask me once is, if God is love, can God hate? Is there anything that God hates if God is love? That's a good question. And the answer is, is yes, because if you have the capacity to love, you necessarily must have the capacity to hate. I mean, think about it. Because I love my daughter, there are things that I hate. I hate it when she's sick. I hate it when somebody hurts her feelings. I hate anything that would do harm or violence to my child. Anything that would make her unsafe, I stand against. I hate those things. And the same is true of God. Because God is love and because He loves us and He desires holiness and wholeness for us, God hates anything that leads us astray or harms our relationship with Him. In fact, Proverbs 6 is just an example of one place in the Bible where it even gives us a specific list of things that God hates. It says there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. And elsewhere, the Bible makes it clear that God hates sin, God hates death, says God hates divorce. God hates idolatry, but the most shocking thing the Bible says that God hates is love. A particular kind of love. Bear bear with me here. 1 John, which is where our text is today, if you'll turn to 1 John chapter 2, is a beautiful letter written by John, the beloved disciple. And love is a key theme in John's letter. This short book famously tells us God is love and that we must love each other the way that God has loved us. But in chapter 2, John tells us that there is a kind of love that God actually hates. A love for the things of the world. In fact, John says if someone loves the world, the love of God cannot abide in them. Worldly love and God's love are mutually exclusive. In James chapter 4, we looked at James last week, and James 4.4 four, reveals that even friendship with the world means enmity with God. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So let's look together at 1 John 2 to see how loving Jesus means that we turn from those worldly desires to find our happiness, our purpose, and our peace in the God who is love. Let's look together at First John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of His name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the Word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. John explains for us here why God hates for His children to fall in love with worldly pursuits and values. It's because we are God's children. We have experienced the love of the Father through faith in Christ. Why would we turn from the giver of every good gift to pursue the things of this lost and wicked world? Jesus warned us in the Sermon on the Mount that we should store up treasures in heaven, not on earth, because what you treasure is what you love. It's where your heart is. Jesus described earthly treasures as fleeting, but heavenly treasures as eternal. And Jesus warned us that it's not possible to treasure both the earthly things and the heavenly things. You you can't love God and your stuff. He said, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And so here... In this passage, specifically in verses 12 through 14, John explains why love for God is far superior to love for the world. And it's why God hates that kind of love. It's because God gives what cannot be lost. God gives what cannot be lost. These few verses here, verses 12 through 14, are written as a poem. And John is addressing three groups of believers in the church Talks to children, to fathers, and to young men. But John often refers to his audience as dear children. Several times in this letter, he says, Dear children, dear children. So he's not really talking about chronological age. John is referring instead to, in, in spiritual terms, he's appealing to those who are young in the faith, who are maybe newly. Christians. He's talking to those who are mature in the faith. Their relationship with God has stood the test of time. So whether you're young or old, whether you're a new believer or you follow Jesus for decades, you can find yourself in these verses. What is true for them, for the people John is addressing, is true for all who trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Every true follower of Christ has been given three things that you can never lose. The first here in verse 12, he says it's forgiveness of sins. You've been given forgiveness of sins as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, earlier in his letter, John wrote this. He said, but if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, well, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, John says, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is one of the most basic and fundamental promises of the Gospel. I mean, all the way back in Matthew, when the angel Gabriel appeared to Joseph, he told Joseph that Jesus would save His people from their sin. And when Jesus was beginning His ministry, John the Baptist pointed to Jesus In John chapter 1, and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the Old Testament, God promises that when He forgives our sins, it's forgiven forever. God erases our sins. He gives us a clean record, a fresh start, a blank page, a clean slate is ours in Jesus Christ. Isaiah 43:25, God says, "I, even I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins, no more. God chooses to forget our sins. In Psalm 103:12, he says, "As far as the east is from the West, so far has He removed our transgressions from us." When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, when you confess your sins and you turn away from that life of sin, from the ways of the world to follow the living God, you are forgiven now and forever. You are justified, which means it's made just as if I'd never sinned. You are declared righteous and you can stand before God and His throne room of grace boldly. Your sins are forgiven. That can never be lost. Secondly, he says, you have God as your Father. Verses 13 and 14, three times in those two verses, John says they have known the Father. They have known Him who is from the beginning. In other words, when you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you also get God as your Heavenly Father. You become a member of the family of faith, the church. And John repeats this. For emphasis, three times he says this because he wants to drive home just how powerful and important and beautifully good this promise is. There are no spiritual orphans among Christ's followers because you believe you belong to God's family. Paul tells us in his letters that though we were enemies of God, though we were by nature objects of His wrath, through the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we who are far away have been brought near to God. We are no longer objects of His wrath, but objects of His love. We are no longer God's enemies, but God's adopted sons and daughters. Jeremiah 31 tells us that this new relationship with God is the very basis of our forgiveness. He says, This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put My law on their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be My people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know Me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. No matter what kind of family you have on this earth, or whether you've had a good and loving father, or whether you've had an absent, ambivalent, or abusive father, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you have an eternal family based on the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ, and you have a good and beautiful father in heaven who is immeasurably more kind and gentle and loving and patient than the best dad on earth. You have forgiveness of sins. You have God as your Father. You can never lose those things. And finally, John says that you have victory through faith. This promise is specifically mentioned to the young men. Perhaps John is picturing young soldiers going off to battle. And what he's telling us is that young believers should be maturing in their faith. They should be actively engaged in spiritual warfare. You don't have to be a seasoned saint to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Every believer, young and old alike, can put on the armor of God. Every believer can wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I believe that young people, and I saw it as a youth minister and I still see it today, I believe that young people who are growing in their relationship with Jesus are the ones that Satan takes aim at the most. And it is certainly no secret that our world as our children, our teenagers, our young adults in its crosshairs. And they are trying to warp their minds, and they are try, the world is trying to win their hearts to its values and its ways. So in verse 14, John encourages these young believers who are engaged in this spiritual battle, and he encourages them in three ways. He tells them, first of all, that they are strong in the Lord. He says right there in verse 14, I write to you young men because you are strong. And that strength is not from themselves, but from the Spirit of Christ at work in them. Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about how he's got this, this weakness that he can't overcome. It's this thorn in the flesh. And listen to what God says to Paul and what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians twelve nine and 10. Paul's been praying and asking for God to remove this thorn in his side. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, Paul says, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When you feel weak, when you feel like the pressure of this world is weighing down on you, when you're struggling to be true to your identity in Christ, just remember, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. You are strong in the Lord. Secondly, Paul promises them that God's Word lives in them. I'm sorry, John promises them that God's Word lives in them. We have the strength and ability to overcome the evil one because of two things. Because of the work of Christ on the cross and the Word of God in our hearts. See, Satan is our accuser. And he is always standing before us to remind us of our past and discourage us. And when He does that, when He throws your past up in your face, you just remember what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. He paid for your sins. And you stand cleansed, not condemned, but cleansed before God. In Christ, Paul says, there is no condemnation. But Satan's other tactic, other than trying to discourage you with your past, he tries to distract you with the things of this world. To tempt you to fall into sin. And that's where the Word of God comes to your aid. It is the sword of the Spirit that can cut apart Satan's lies. That's why Psalm 119.11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It is because you are strong through Christ's work and God's word that you can know this third truth. He says that you have overcome the evil one. Because you are strong in the Lord, because the Word of God abides in you, you have overcome the evil one. Not you will overcome. He says you have overcome. It's a done deal. Guess what? I've read the last book of the Bible and we win. Victory is secured for those who trust in Christ. 1 John 4 says, You dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Amen. That is good news. Forgiveness of sin. God is your Father. The assurance of victory over Satan because of the work of Christ on the cross and the Word of God in our hearts, those are what are ours in Christ Jesus. And they can never be lost. And that is why loving God is supreme. But next, John turns his attention to what the world promises, but can never give. See, God gives what cannot be lost, but the world offers what it cannot give. And this is the real tragedy of refusing the good and eternal gifts of God for the empty promises of the world. This is why God hates love for worldly things, because it deceives His children. It distracts us from His gifts and love. And it damages our witness for Christ. And so John moves from this, this encouraging, beautiful poem to some pretty stern words of exhortation. Let's read them again in verses 15 through 17. He says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has done, comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Now let's be clear about one thing. When John's talking about the world... He isn't referring to God's good creation. He isn't talking about the people that God loves for whom Jesus died. So when John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, it's referring to something different from 1 John 2.15 that says that that we must not love the world. The, The world there is two different things that are being referred to. Here, what John is referring to is worldliness, it's a mindset. It's a perspective that's been devised by and perpetrated by the evil one. It's characterized by sinful cravings and lust and pride. He's referring to the lost, condemned state of our world that's caused by the brokenness of sin. It's what Jesus came to defeat and undo and to save us from. That's what John means by the world. Do we understand? Okay? So the world, meaning the worldliness, the fallen state of man, the the, the lusts and the cravings and the pride that come with sin, that's what John is referring to. And John gives us three examples of the world's promises that can never be kept. And, And let these be words of warning for us, because we are tempted by these things every day. They're like a siren song. They're constantly luring and and, and beckoning to us. And if we follow them, it will lead us down dark and dangerous roads. The first thing the world promises but can never give, it promises a lesser love. It promises a lesser love. Blaise Pascal famously wrote, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. It's so a God shaped whole inside every one of us, because we were created to love and be loved. We yearn to belong, to know and to be known and cared for, but sin has disordered these very good desires and affections. So that as another famous philosopher once wrote, we end up looking for love in all the wrong places. The tragedy of loving the world and the things of the world is that we end up going in the opposite direction from God who is the source of the only love that can ever truly satisfy us. You remember the scene from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? where Indy is in the room, where all the, the, the grails are. He's looking for the Holy Grail, and there's all these beautiful goblets and platters and cups, and there's this old knight who's been there for just you know 2,000 years guarding this thing. And the knight says to him, Choose, but choose wisely. For while the true grail will bring you life, the false grail will take it from you. And those of you who have seen the movie, you know, the bad guy, unfortunately, you know, he, he drinks, he, he chooses poorly. And he just like sort of just shrivels up and blows away in the wind right before our eyes. But thankfully, Indy, you know, naturally, he chooses wisely. He chooses the right cup. Well, in this passage, John is telling us, choose, choose whom you will love, but choose wisely. Choose God the Father who will give you life not the worldly promises of the father of lies who will take it from you. That's the choice that is before us. And like those false grails, the promises of this world are beautiful. They look good. They're impressive. But even good and beautiful things, when we turn them into gods, when we place them, the love that only God deserves, they turn deadly. And a lot of people today are confused about love about what love is. We hear a lot in our world today about love and that love is love and, and all love is the same, but it's not true. Worldly love is nothing like love from the Father. Don't fall into the trap of any love that is lesser than the love of God as revealed through Jesus Christ in the Word of God. That is love. John even says that we know love because of what Jesus did for us. He is the example of what true, real love is. Now John next turns to three things that the world uses to pull us away from the greater love. Three things that this lesser love of the world tries to convince us of. And these three things go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Look with me at Genesis 3.6. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree that was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it, gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. She saw the fruit on the tree, that it was good for food, that it was pleasing to the eye, that it was desirable for making them wise as God. Now look with me again here in John 2, verse 16. For everything in the world, the cravings, of sinful man or sinful flesh, the lust of his eyes and the boastful pride of life, the boasting of what he has or does. These three temptations go all the way back to Eden. And they are so deeply ingrained in our human nature that Jesus Himself had to confront These three temptations when he was in the wilderness after his baptism. You might remember Jesus was baptized. The Spirit led him into the wilderness where he fasted and prayed for 40 days. And Satan himself came and tempted Jesus. He tempted Jesus to fulfill his physical appetites through unnatural means. Satan appealed to Jesus' affections by offering him all the kingdoms of the world. And Satan tempted Jesus to pridefully reveal Himself as the Messiah through a stunning display of power. It's the same three temptations John is talking about. It's the same three things that Eve saw when she looked at that tree. And because Jesus overcame these ancient temptations, we too can overcome them through His Spirit at work in us. When we love God supremely, we can beware of and be on guard against the promise of the sinful satisfaction of our appetites that's what the world tries to give us sinful satisfaction of our appetites now now don't get me wrong appetites desires cravings are not in themselves evil god created us to have appetites and desires that's part of what it means to be physical creatures We have to go outside of ourselves for what we need. Only God is the self-sufficient creator. We are created beings who necessarily have these, these needs, these appetites. It's the object of our desires that determines whether those appetites are good or evil. Hunger is not sinful, but gluttony is. Thirst is not evil, but drunkenness is. Sleep is a wonderful gift from God. Can I get an amen? But laziness is shameful. Sex is also a precious gift from God when it is used rightly, but outside of God's design for it, it's enslaving and dehumanizing and destructive. This, this is how the world operates. It takes our bodies with all of its needs and wants created by God to be good and it promises to satisfy them in self-destructive ways that denies the image of God within us. We must resist the sinful satisfaction of our appetites. Secondly, he talks about the lustful appeals to our affections. The lustful appeals to our affections. Our bodies aren't the only things that have appetites. Our mind has appetites as well. And our mind's appetites are satisfied through our senses. We even use expressions like feast your eyes on this. Truly, when we look at things, we are, it's a, it can be a feast for our eyes. Affections are how we talk about the appetites of our mind. And again, God made our five senses. He created us to be curious, to want to see and hear and experience the world around us. But we have to be careful Because our senses are also the windows to our souls. And so our senses, especially our eyes and our ears, can very easily lead us astray. This is why Paul warns us about having itching ears that want to hear what we want to hear, that just kind of affirms our our choices and our, our beliefs instead of confronting them. It's why Jesus says that to look lustfully at a woman is the same as committing adultery with her. And was not David led by his eyes to adultery and murder? And ours is a culture. Ours is a culture that denigrates sex to meaningless, physical acts devoid of consequences. Ours is a culture that promotes pornographic images through TV and movies and music and video games. Often to children it promotes these things. And ideas like abstinence outside of marriage, like modesty, like setting boundaries in your relationships, like if you're out of town and you're not with your wife, don't go have dinner by yourself with another woman. Things that our culture looks at and says, that's so backward, that's so bigoted, is that any wonder we've produced an environment where rape and sexual harassment are out of control. We as a culture have allowed our affections to be appealed to by lust. It's the world in which we live. And we need to be just as careful about what we feast our eyes and ears upon as much as we're careful against gluttony or drunkenness. Carefully consider the images and the words that you allow into your mind and into your soul through the the things you watch on TV or on the movie screen, through the websites that you visit, through the books that you read and the music that you listen to. Because like it or not, they are planting seeds in your soul. And if you're not careful, the seeds from the world's messages will grow up into weeds that will choke out the Word of God in your life and keep you from producing the fruit of the Spirit. Paul instructed us in Romans 12:2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, p- pleasing, and perfect will. Are you this morning conforming to the world's ways of thinking? Or are you allowing your mind to be transformed by the Word of God? And the last thing he talks about here is self-glorifying ambition. That's the other way the world appeals to us. Through self-glorifying ambition. Your translation may say boastful pride of life. And that Greek word there for boastful, it refers to a braggart who's trying to impress other people with his own importance. Again, Washington and Hollywood today are unraveling because of men who have been convinced of their own self-importance and have tried to impress that importance on other people. They've tried to leverage their power. And when you do that, you self-destruct. And sadly, you take other people with you. It really this boils down to idolatry. Rather than glorifying God, we glorify ourselves. Now, when we, we think of idolatry today, we think of modern-day idols, we think of things like power, possessions, prestige, position, but really, these are all in surface to the chief idol of all. And you know what the chief idol of all is? Self. Self. Coventing, coveting things is really just about what is mine. It's a me first me-centered attitude that dethrones the Creator God and elevates self as the ultimate source and reason for everything. And that kind of attitude is exactly the opposite of the Gospel. Turn with me, keep your finger there, and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Paul explains the Gospel here in this beautiful nutshell. This poem where he says in Philippians 2, he says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped and fought for and held on to, but He made Himself nothing. He emptied Himself taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death, on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Notice that Jesus, who was God, willingly laid aside His privileges and power as God so He could be humbled and made human like a slave to willingly give up His life on the cross for us. And contrast that with Adam and Eve and by extension each of us who instead crave to be like God who ate the forbidden fruit thinking that it would make them like God so they could determine for themselves what was right and wrong, good and evil. That is the essence of all sin. We elevate ourselves above God and above others. We seek our own glory rather than humility. We reach for what is not ours rather than give up what is ours for the sake of other people. And the irony is that true strength is made perfect in weakness. That lasting blessings come through humility and brokenness. John concludes here in verse 17, he says, "The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever." John ends this section with a dose of reality and a call to action. This world and all it offers us, it's fleeting. Our lives on this earth are like a vapor. We're just here for a moment, and then we're gone. And even in that brief span of our life on earth, what this world has to offer is passing away. There just aren't that many things we can really hang on to in this life. So will we foolishly cling to the things of this world, which are constantly slipping through our hands like sand, or will we take hold of what is eternal? Because those who do the will of God live forever. When we turn to God for love, for our identity, for our purpose and for belonging, we will always be loved. We will always know who we are and what we're to do and where we belong. We can never lose those things in Christ. So a question for you this morning is what is the foundation of your life? Who or what do you really love today? Where is your treasure? Where is your heart? I pray that you won't let the love for this world overshadow your love for God. Don't spend your life chasing after the wind. This morning, do you know the love of God that's found only in a relationship with Jesus Christ? If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, as we sing in a moment, I'm going to be standing down front and I would love nothing more than introduce you to the God who wants to be your Father and who wants to forgive you and give you a free, fresh start. The God who wants you to know His love forever and ever. Forgiveness today can be yours if you would come and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Are you loving the Father this morning? With all of your heart? With all of your soul? With all of your mind and strength? Whatever God has spoken to you today, I hope that you will listen to Him. I hope this morning you would grow to love the Father supremely because He has loved you so deeply. Would you stand and sing and come and respond as God leads today?